having just read uh, the entire chapter of Mark 13, I I won't go through and read it again. Uh, For the purpose of this sermon, we're going to be focusing particularly on verses uh, 1 through 13 and also verses 32 through 33 of Mark chapter 13. Let me open us in a word of prayer. Father, we do tremble before your word, before the words of Christ. And Lord, we recognize what your scripture tells us to be true, that Lord, if we do not have your spirit, we cannot read or understand your word. For the things of your word, the things of God are spiritually discerned. And so, Father, we pray that you would give us the mind of Christ, that you would give us the spirit of Christ. Lord, that as we enter into this word, that you would grant our true desire to seek the meaning of this great text. Father, that you would be pleased to communicate what we ought to know through my feeble words tonight. And Lord, we pray that Christ would be exalted and glorified and magnified, and that, Lord, our response to that would be to worship in obedience. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this week as I was uh, preparing for this sermon, I was listening to Dr. R.C. Sproul's uh, treatment of the Olivet Discourse, and he began his sermon with these words in his uh, characteristic gravelly voice. He said, I am sailing my ship into troubled waters. <laughs> and that, that was Dr. R.C. Sproul, a, a, a human, fallible, no doubt, but a respected and, and time-honored, well-proved uh, theologian. And so I was assured and comforted by this. If R.C. can have a little bit of trepidation about adequately preaching this text, then I think I can too. There's no doubt that these are difficult words that we've just read here in Mark chapter 13. They are difficult to interpret. They're difficult to understand. And yet I want to be sure that we, we start tonight by uh, affirming this, that we, we ought not to allow the difficulty of this text to take away from our desire to know what it means. And I understand that's a hard thing to ask. It's, it's frustrating when we feel like we can't fully grasp what's being said here, but I don't want that, the difficulty of these words to take away from our desire to seek after their meaning. Because we must trust and rely upon this, that God has not given us his word to discourage us. He hasn't given us his word to frustrate us or to perplex us or to confuse us, but he's given us his word so that by it we may know how to live and to glorify him in all places at all times and in every age. And I firmly believe that there is much here that can instruct us in how to do that. And we can speak of several purposes of Scripture, but I just want to highlight two as we begin tonight. The purpose of Scripture is to exalt, glorify, magnify the life, work, and ministry of Christ, who is the fulfillment, the yes and amen to every single one of God's promises. That's one purpose of Scripture, is to show us Christ And a second purpose of Scripture is to instruct us in how we may live so that we might love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that we might glorify God and enjoy Him forever. What do the Scriptures principally teach, if you know your catechism? They teach what we are to know and believe about God and how we are to live in light of that knowledge. And so we need to affirm that of all of Scripture, which includes this text here tonight, as difficult as it may be for us to completely understand. 
Let me also give another qualification here. Uh, I'm sure I'm not going to be able in the span of 25 minutes to answer all the questions that you may have about this text, nor am I so uh, presumptuous to believe that I will have answers that may change views that you've held for many years. And if you've studied this passage, I know you're going to have questions and you're going to have very specific beliefs related to uh, this text. And so I want to say to you, I probably will not answer all those questions that you have, and that's okay. My objective tonight is not necessarily to answer all those questions or to change your views at all. In fact, because I believe there is such a rich store of daily bread here for us, what I want to tell you uh, that is my, what is my objective tonight is this. I want to encourage you and to exhort you to faithful living during what Scripture calls these last days. And we're in the period between Christ's uh, first coming and his ascension and his return, what we often call the already not yet, the period uh, between Christ's first coming in which he inaugurated his kingdom and uh, as we await uh, when he returns to finally consummate and establish that kingdom. So we're in the midst of that period now, and I believe that this text particularly speaks to how we might live faithfully in the midst of of that time. You know, I think uh, it's inevitable that our tendency is when we come to passages like this or we come to other passages that are colored with uh, apocalyptic language and predictive prophecy, our tendency is to try to use these biblical texts as a kind of biblical horoscope, as it were, to, to try to answer the very question that the disciples themselves ask. When are these things going to take place? And that is the million-dollar question What makes this text particularly difficult as well is that there are three prophetic events that Jesus addresses, and each of them are interconnected both in the text and also symbolically as well. Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple. He predicts the destruction of Jerusalem itself, and he also describes or predicts his return or second coming. So you have three events that are mixed into this text, and they're all connected. Adding to the difficulty of interpretation is the fact that Jesus actually doesn't answer the question of when. But instead, he gives warning about specific signs which will accompany these events. And so the challenge for us is understanding which specific event Jesus is speaking to in each verse and which signs will particularly accompany that specific event. And again, because these events are connected, it can be difficult to untangle them. Let me give you, just to be straightforward with you, my general conviction about this text. I believe that this text presents very specific prophecies. Prophecies, many of which have already been fulfilled. But this text also combines those predictive prophecies with enduring exhortations to faithfulness that very much apply to us today. Let me explain a little bit more what I mean. You see, Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple. And we know, of course, that this prophecy has been fulfilled because it was destroyed in AD 70 by the Romans. The very stones of the temple were leveled, they were burned, and they were thrown down, fulfilling Jesus' words here in verses 1 through 2. The destruction of the temple ended the sacrificial system, as John mentioned this morning, which was necessary... It needed to happen, according to the author of Hebrews, so that the high priesthood of Christ would finally and forever be established as the only means of atonement, the only means of mediation, so that his sacrifice would be exalted. 
And I, I do believe that any reestablishment of the, the temple and reinstitution of the sacrificial system would actually violate the significance of Christ's priesthood. The sacrificial system ended with the destruction of the temple so that Christ's ministry and mediation would be exalted. Now, as John said this morning, the period between Christ's ascension and the destruction of the temple was a period of transition in which, as the author of Hebrews again describes, he tells us the former things were passing away. It was a period of transition. The old covenant system was becoming obsolete. At the destruction of the temple, that old system finally passed away, and I don't believe that there is a need for it to return. But along with the destruction of the temple came the destruction of Jerusalem, which again, as I said, Jesus also predicts in this passage, also occurring at the hand of the Romans in AD 70. And it's in reference to the obliteration of Jerusalem that Jesus commends in verse 15 that those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now that would seem like an odd thing to say uh, to us particularly uh, if if it was still supposedly uh, needed to be fulfilled Today, But in light of the severity of the Roman destruction that was coming, Jesus shows pity and concern here for those who actually will have a more difficult time fleeing that destruction at the hands of the Romans. So it's these two events, this destruction of both the temple and of Jerusalem, and the fulfillment of Jesus' prophecies here, which I believe begins to mark this period in what we now find ourselves in, which is these last days. A period in which the very next thing to occur, the very next thing that we're waiting for to happen, is Christ's return in glory. Now, I want to say to you that it could be very well that the same signs which signaled the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem will also accompany Christ's return. It could very well be that wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes and famines, hostile nations and governments and family members, the abomination of desolation, abominable idolatry in the place of godliness and cosmic upheaval, it's very possible that all those things are also going to accompany Christ's return just as they accompanied the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem. But I want to say tonight as well that I think that one of the primary purposes of the Olivet Discourse and it's, it's important that we not miss this. One of, the, one of the main thrusts of this passage is not to encourage us or to exhort us to try to predict when these things are going to happen, when Christ is going to come back. I don't believe that however bad we want to know the moment at which he'll return, that the lion's share of our efforts in understanding this passage ought to be applied to trying to figure out when that's going to happen. Instead, as I've already said, I think that this text is emphatic in giving us instructions in how to live faithfully in preparation for Christ's return. I mean, you have to be wondering, why didn't Jesus just answer the disciples' question? When they asked him, when will these things take place, why did he not just tell them it's going to happen at this time and at this day? And I think that perhaps he didn't, because rather than just giving information, what Jesus desired to do was to instruct. As a good teacher, what he desired to do was to instruct in how they, the disciples, and also how we might be prepared. How we might be prepared to live faithfully in these last days. You know, these days, as we consider what it means to be prepared for the end of the world, uh, many, picture, many people picture uh, doomsdayers. Did you all ever see that show? Well, I think it was on Discovery Channel. Well, it, it's this uh, documentary that follows people who believe the world is going to end 
uh, in nuclear war. And uh, these people build bunkers underneath the ground and they stockpile canned goods, water, gas masks, and various resources waiting for the destruction of the earth. But the biblical image that we're given here of being prepared for Christ's return is actually very different uh, than the doomsdayers. In fact, in this chapter, which contains 37 verses, there are 18 imperatives, 18 commands. And none of them commend us to hunker down in bunkers with canned goods and stockpiled resources. None of them call us to come up with predictive philosophies that can tell us exactly when the world will end. What these 18 imperatives call us to, and if I could summarize this sermon, what these 18 imperatives call us to is faithful perseverance in the hope of Christ's return. Faithful perseverance in the hope of Christ's return. And that's the substance of this sermon. I'm not here to work out every detail of your eschatology or try to convince you that amillennialism is the way. I'm not here to tell you exactly when the world will end. I'm not here to try to convince you that we're on the cusp of the world's ending by comparing current events to this scripture. My objective, rather, is to encourage you and to weigh this fact that Christ could return this very evening. And the question that we must answer is this. Are we prepared for his return? Are we awake? Are we being faithful to the instructions given in this text? Are we watching? Are we waiting? Are we guarding ourselves so that we're not led astray into worldly philosophies? Are we patiently enduring the tribulations and trials of this world? Patiently worshiping in spirit and in truth, waiting for our king to return in glory on the clouds of heaven? Are we ready for Christ to come back? What can frustrate us about this text is that there's both certainty and uncertainty here. And what's uncertain is that we do not know the exact timing and moment of Christ's return. Jesus declares in verse 32, concerning that day and that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And let me say briefly that this is not a statement by Jesus denying divine omniscience. He's not denying that he is the omniscient Son of God and second person of the Trinity. There's different interpretations. I believe particularly that this information very well could have been veiled from Jesus. But I think what he's saying to his disciples is that it's not my role here on earth as your teacher and rabbi to tell you and to disclose when the culmination of God's redemptive plan will occur. What I am here to do is to instruct you in how to be prepared for when that moment comes. And that, that uncertainty, it may frustrate us. I don't know if it frustrates you, but it has frustrated me in the past because I've wanted to know, like the disciples. But it's not meant to frustrate us. It's meant to motivate us. It's meant to cause us to consider the way that we live in light of the fact that Christ could come back suddenly at any moment. And this is what's certain about this text. If there's much that's uncertain, and if there's much that's debated, what is not debated and what is certain is this fact, that Christ is coming back, that he will return, and that his return could happen at any moment. I like to think of it this way, that the very next event on the plot line of redemption is Christ's return. And so I think that for tonight, what we ought to do is that we ought to concern ourselves with that fact. We ought to concern ourselves with what is certain and how we are to live in light of that certainty. Because Christ is coming back and that is certain, here's how we are to live. 
I want to give you some of those instructions. Verses 1 and 2 begin with this principle, which is certainly applicable for us today. It says this, Do not be captivated by earthly glory. Do not be captivated by earthly glory. As the disciples are exiting the temple here with Jesus, they marvel at its glory and its splendor. One of the disciples says to Jesus, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Now, I know it's hard for us to kind of visualize the temple, and so it's hard for us to consider how really marvelous it was. Let me give you a description just of the stones from first century Jewish historian Josephus, which maybe this will help us to picture how massive and wonderful this building was. Josephus describes the stones which made up the temple, the stones that the disciples are marveling at here, and he tells us that these stones were approximately 60 feet long, 11 feet high, which is taller than David, if you can believe it, 8 feet deep, and nearly 1 million pounds in weight. 60 feet long, a single stone. The temple itself took up approximately 35 acres. The temple building took up 35 acres. This truly was an, a wonder of the ancient world. And from an earthly sense, it was certainly deserving of awe and wonder. And though, though the disciples probably had seen it many times, no doubt uh, they had reason to marvel at it as they're exiting the temple here. But what is Jesus' response? He says to them very plainly, Do you see these buildings? Do you see this temple? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now we need to recognize how shocking that statement would be. If you're standing next to a stone that's 60 feet long, 11 feet high, 8 feet deep, and a million pounds, to be told that these stones are going to be thrown down, it would seem like an outrageous thing to say. Yet as history records, that's exactly what happened. These massive stones were thrown down and destroyed. Now, the temple for the disciples represented not simply an incredible building to marvel at, but it was their way of life. It represented the establishment of the nation of Israel. It was their distinctive, it was their marker of identity as the people of God. And so I'm sure they were convinced that this structure would surely last the ages. Perhaps if they'd known their history, the fact that this was Herod's temple, not Solomon's, they would not have put such trust in it. Jesus reminds them here that this structure will not endure. In fact, what's really amazing is that Jesus contrasts the impermanency of the temple with the permanency of his words. Now that's important. In verse 31, Jesus says this. He's just told them in verses 1 through 2 that this temple will be destroyed. The stones will be thrown down. In verse 31, he says this. Heaven and earth will pass away, including the temple, but my words will not pass away. Jesus is contrasting what is permanent, what is everlasting, what will endure, and what will not. And I believe that Jesus is directing the disciples' attention, as well as our own, away from what is earthly towards what is heavenly. Away from that which may to us appear to be true to what is actually true. And what's true is this, that this world is not our final home. It will pass away. And we can all confess together that we're easily tempted to lose sight of this fact. And I know this well. We're consumed with busy tasks. We're consumed with building our lives and careers. 
And though we might affirm the witness of Scripture in our hearts and minds when it tells us that we ought to think on heavenly things, to set our minds on things above, to set our minds on Christ who's seated at the right hand of God, although we want to affirm that, yes, we do that, it's another thing it's a, altogether. It's another challenge altogether to actually put that into practice. I do believe we're tempted to put too much stock in the world around us, to base our hope on what we can see, what we can achieve, what we can build, what we can gather the experiences that we can enjoy, the success that we can build, rather than considering that all these things will pass away. Too often we long for mansions of glory here rather than awaiting the mansions of glory that await us in heaven. And we labor hard to build those mansions here, forgetting that they will not endure. Jesus commends his disciple here not to put their hope and trust in what is earthly. Don't be captivated by what's earthly but to put their hope and their trust in the promises of God, the words of God, which, as he says, will not pass away. The disciples, as I said, no doubt believed that the temple was intrinsic to their identity. It was what identified them as the people of God. But another thing that Christ is doing here by not only lifting their eyes from what is earthly to what is heavenly, but he's showing that this is a definitive change in the story of redemption because no longer are you going to identify with the temple as a building. Now you're going to identify with Christ who is the new temple. John makes this clear in his gospel when he gives us that nice parenthetical note to say that when Jesus was speaking of the temple, he was talking about his body. And so now, no longer are the people of God, including us and the disciples, identified by their association with the temple, but now, through faith, we become the temple of God in which Christ Jesus is himself the very cornerstone. So Jesus was teaching his disciples not only to not trust in what's earthly, but to consider that it is not that our identity can be found in nothing else but Christ alone. The second imperative that's given to us here, or instruction, is this. Don't be led astray. Don't be led astray. And here Jesus warns his disciples of a dangerous threat which will accompany these prophetic events. And let me assure you, this is as, y'all, this is as much a threat to the disciples then and the early Christian church as it is for us today. And what is this threat? It's the threat of false Christs. Jesus warns, he says, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. Now the emphasis of that statement, I am he, is made all the more clear that when you realize that the very thing, it's the very thing, the very words that Jesus claimed throughout his own ministry. The words in Greek for I am he in your ESV translations are ego eimi. I am. Jesus makes this same statement many times as recorded in the gospel. You'll remember the familiar statements, I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the light of the world. Jesus promises that there will come in these last days false messiahs, falsely bearing the name of Christ, falsely proclaiming the salvific message of Christ, false messiahs who are going to say, Ego, a me, I am. They will lead many astray because of their lies. To understand what Jesus means and who these false messiahs are, we need to consider the substance of what Jesus was declaring when he stated, I am. What did Jesus mean when he said, I am the bread of life? I am the good shepherd. And the answer is this, that Jesus was declaring himself to be the only way, the only truth, and the only life, the Savior and Redeemer of mankind, the only name on heaven and on earth by which we must be saved. 
So those I am statements that Jesus declares, what what he's declaring is this, that he is definitively the very Son of God. The God who declared in the Old Testament, I am to Moses. Jesus is saying, I am. Jesus and the Father are one. So this means that whatever the false messiahs are declaring, whatever they're offering, it has to be some sort of attempt to, to replicate that. In other words, what they're going to try to offer is a false means of salvation, as another way of, of declaring, I am. If Christ came as the very Son of God to accomplish redemption and salvation, then these false messiahs are going to claim to be able to do the same. And, and I see these false messiahs represented today in what is this kind of pseudo-spirituality of universalism that sees Christ not as though the only means of salvation, but as simply another path up the mountain. I see these false messiahs as those who proclaim a prosperity gospel without Christ, which promises you the riches of an earthly temple, but fails to provide the means by which we may attain to the hope of a heavenly inheritance. I see these false messiahs as those who claim a Christ which the Bible does not recognize. And these false philosophies that they promote, they promise salvation. They may even invoke the name and power of Christ, but they are a false gospel preached by false teachers. They are a Christianity without Christ, if we can say that such a thing exists. We must understand that Christ is the only means of salvation, and the only means given to us to know the true Christ is God's very own inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Imagine, that's not very different than the application that you heard in this morning's sermon. If Christ has commanded us to not be led astray, well, then we have to ask, well, what means are given to us? What tools are given to us so that we can, we can stay in line and, and not be led astray? And the means which God has given to us is the very Word of God and the Spirit of God that dwells within us, who confirms not only that we are sons and daughters of God, but also confirms the truth of these God-breathed words. Did not Jesus say, My Helper will come and will confirm all that I've said to you, will teach you the things that I have declared to you while on earth. So the Son of God and the Word of God are inseparable. And as John said this morning, that's going to be really the key to how we know what is truly of Christ and what's not. The Word of God and the Son of God are inseparable. And we should expect that such devotion to the Word of God, such devotion to Christ, that this will certainly bring persecution and trials and difficulty in these last days. And this is uh, uh, spoken of, Jesus speaks to this, in particularly in verses 7 through 8 and verses 9 through 10. There's two more principles that are given here in these imperatives, which are, do not be alarmed and be on your guard. The call to be not, not be alarmed or not be greatly shaken comes in response to this kind of global upheaval that will accompany these last days. And this global upheaval is expressed in terms of natural, uh, earthly disasters like earthquakes and famines, but also in sociocultural matters with regard to you know, conflict between nations and kingdoms of the world. But, but, but look at this. In contrast to the shaking and the trembling and the breaking apart of the earth in conflict, Christ calls his followers to be steadfast and immovable, to not be alarmed. The word is don't be shaken. 
And the language here, Jesus' instruction is reminiscent, I think, of the Psalms, particularly of Psalm 46, which declares, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, the Lord of hosts is with us. We might also think of Psalm 62, which we've read for our confession, which declares, For God alone, O my soul, I wait in silence, for my hope is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. What does it say? I shall not be shaken. For on God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. So when Christ tells us in these last days, don't be alarmed, don't be shaken, we must understand that we must have something to stand upon if that's going to be true. And what we must stand upon is the rock of Christ and the hope of his return. I don't know how long it will be before Christ returns. From the day of Christ's ascension until now, we've seen and experienced much of what this passage describes The tumult of a broken world, a brokenness that's expressed in destructive natural disasters and terrible world wars. And more of this may come. In fact, I think we should expect it to. And yet even now, as we stand upon what could be the precipice of World War III, our call to faithfulness remains the same. We are to trust in the Lord our God and to stand upon the rock, and that rock is Christ. For it is in standing upon Christ alone that we can declare with confidence, we will not be shaken. Christ himself says to us, hear, hear these words again. Let them hit your heart anew. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. For in this world you will have trouble, you will have tribulation. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. So let us in these last days take heart, just as Christ has said, knowing that Christ is the ultimate victor. He already has, and he certainly will overcome this world. So don't be alarmed, Christian. Don't be greatly shaken. The second principle is to be on our guard. And the simple truth of this principle is that it commends us to be prepared for these difficulties which we've just described, whether it's the natural disasters or it's the conflict of kingdoms. It calls us to be on guard as well for specific persecution against Christians. We must be prepared, not only in expecting that we will experience such persecution, but we must be prepared to proclaim Christ in the midst of that persecution. You'll notice here that the primary action in these verses is that of bearing witness, of giving testimony. And this is what we are to be on guard for. This is what we're to be prepared for. We're to be prepared to preach and proclaim the gospel in the face of great hostility and persecution. Not only as we receive it from kings and governors, but even from our own families. And I think we all know that's a lot more difficult. This, as it's described in verse 12, paints a picture of family members giving other family members over to death. Are we willing for the sake of the gospel to accept such a fate? We're promised for Christ's sake, for Christ's name, that we will be hated by all. And that all, Christ tells us, can include our very own family members. And this should not seem strange to us. If you look at both the gospel accounts of Jesus and his betrayal and crucifixion, and if you go to the book of Acts 
and you look at the ministry of the disciples, you will see that both Jesus and his disciples endured this very same persecution. And so why should we, bearing the same charge and responsibility that they were given, expect anything different? Be on guard. Be prepared. Not only to face that persecution, but to face it boldly and faithfully and proclaim the gospel Our role, no matter what the earthly circumstances are, is to proclaim and preach the gospel and witness to Christ. So, brothers and sisters, if you find yourself in the next few months, in the next few days, on a plane that's going down because it lost an engine, stand up and proclaim the gospel. If you're serving in a hospital ER during a pandemic, proclaim the gospel. If you're fighting on the front lines of battle in a distant European country, namely Ukraine, proclaim the gospel. If you're on trial at the hands of your government for proclaiming the gospel, proclaim the gospel to your prosecutors. In conversation with your family members, preach the gospel. This is our great imperative, our great instruction for these last days. Regardless of your eschatological views, I think we can all agree this is our charge and we must take hold of it. The end goal of our faithful living in these last days is to faithfully proclaim the gospel of Christ until he comes again. And with great encouragement, and we'll end on this final point, I remind you, as Jesus does here, that when we stand to proclaim the gospel in those situations, in the face of great difficulty and persecution, we do not stand alone. When we rise to speak, we're told that it's not us who speak, but the Spirit of God who will speak through us, who will give us the very words Proclaim the gospel, trusting, relying, and leaning hard on the shoulder of the Spirit of God in the present hope of Christ's imminent return. Just consider for a moment how wonderful and glorious it would be to be found proclaiming the gospel at the very moment that Christ comes back. To be having a conversation with someone, speaking of the glory of Christ at that moment when he comes to stand upon the Mount of Olives, which he, which, he, which he once sat upon, to see it split in two. His return is certain. Christ will come again. And the question that we must answer, as I asked you in the beginning of this sermon, is are we prepared? Let us take these instructions that we've been given seriously. I want to end by asking a question that the Apostle Peter also once called his church to consider. He says this, What sort of people... Ought we to be in light of these things, in light of the promise of Christ's return, in light of the passing away of all that is old and the coming of all that is new, in light of the establishment of the kingdom of God and the new heavens and new earth, when this earth will pass away, what sort of people ought we to be? I hope that in receiving these instructions from Christ tonight, you may reply to that question just as Peter does. We are to be a people whose lives are marked by the persistent pursuit of godliness and holiness. May we be those who live faithfully in these last days. Go and do this. Do not be captivated by earthly glory. Do not be led astray. Do not be alarmed or shaken or fearful, but be prepared and be on guard. Boldly proclaim the gospel in every circumstance, trusting and leaning upon the Spirit of God as you faithfully endure and persevere unto the very end. My prayer tonight is that we would be such a people, worthy of the calling of God in Christ Jesus and faithful to the very end. Let's pray. 
Father, we ask a simple but profound prayer that you would help us to be faithful to these words. That, Lord, you would help us to internalize these instructions that you have given to us, Lord. That we would be faithful in these last days. That, Lord, we would live in light of the fact that you could come at any moment. May we be prepared. May we be awake. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.